back to In the Labyrinth of Death, the podcast where we explore the choices people make in disasters and whether those choices keep them alive. I'm Finn. And I'm Marina. This week, we're talking about frozen lakes. Yep. Today, we've got everything from horror stories to how to tell when the ice is safe to what to do if you fucked up and now you're in the water under the ice. So I don't know about you, but I did some quick research into all the kind of movies that had some sort of frozen lake or ice lake scene. And for the most part, they were usually pretty unrealistic. But we're going to get into that later on. I didn't actually even realize until I researched all of this how many of those movies really are inaccurate because you just, we're not people who live like super far up north. So we're not around ice like that. And I didn't realize, especially in stuff like The Hobbit that we'll talk about later, like how really, really bad and unrealistic that was. But we'll get into all that later. And I think something else that fascinated me about the topic of frozen over lakes is I have this really weird romantic notion of what it means to be like up north in something that's really frozen or really like deep far down south like in Antarctica. I have this kind of like, I know it's like a super romanticized vision, but like just being out alone on the ice like as the only human out there. And I know like being out in a frozen lake is like a little tiny sliver of that. But I don't know, there's just something really entrancing to me about being out in like the wilderness like this. Okay, so this just came to me. Remember the video I showed you of that guy who jumped into the frozen pool? Yeah. Did you think of this topic before or after that? I don't remember. He's talking about this video. He was like, this is why men are dumber than women. And he, it was this guy and he like said something and then he like was going to jump into a frozen pool and the ice didn't break and he just like hit his hip on it really horrifically badly. I don't know. I, I may have been inspired I think I might that. have planted the seed there. You might have. Anyways, let's go on to the topic. And before we get into it, remember, we're not experts at all of any kind. We just really don't want to die, and we like researching and talking about it. So please listen to the full disclaimer at the end of the episode, and don't sue us. We're just two regular people. All right, story time to kick this off. I'm actually going to start this story a little before the disaster, a year before, in fact, and across the Atlantic. It was 1863 in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, Canada. There was a local steel company there called Star Manufacturing. They made basic stuff like nuts and bolts and other steel things like that. Then Star Manufacturing hired a man named John Forbes. Forbes and his colleague, Thomas Bateman, invented a new form of steel ice skate. Now, prior to this invention, you either had to lash steel blades to your boots, which was unstable and sounds like a broken ankle waiting to happen, or you had to screw the blades directly into the boot itself. So screwing it in was actually secure, but it required that a whole pair of boots be dedicated entirely to ice skating. This new kind of ice skate from Star Manufacturing was the best of both worlds. It was a steel blade that could be clamped temporarily to any pair of boots via a spring lock mechanism. Now, people were able to skate without fear of snapping their ankles off, and they didn't have to ruin a good pair of boots to do it. The invention was patented in 1866 and called the Acme Spring Skate. So skating became even more popular at this point, especially in England, where people would skate on frozen lakes and rivers. In London, people enjoyed ice skating on the lake in Regent's Park. To set the scene, Regent's Park was huge and beautiful. It was 410 acres that included eight villas, a zoo, a horse riding area, botanical gardens, and a large 12-foot deep lake. You've probably seen Regent's Park in a few movies. They actually go there in 28 weeks later, and it's apparently also where Harry Potter talks to the snake at the zoo when he makes the glass disappear in the Sorcerer's Stone. And, perhaps most importantly, it's also the ending location of one of my favorite movies, Withnal and I. So if you haven't seen that, go watch it. But back to the scene of our disaster. Remember, this is Victorian England, so picture that for the crowds of people out there enjoying the weather. It was a cold, cold January, 
and with the lake frozen over, people were enjoying getting out and skating. One thing to note is that allegedly, the park keepers actually busted up the ice at the edges of the lake to give some kind of special waterfowl space to swim even in the winter. So just keep that in mind that that's a thing that happened. The day before our disaster, the ice cracked and 21 people fell into the freezing water. Luckily, all were rescued by a skate club volunteering as rescue quote-unquote icemen, and so there were no fatalities. They posted notices letting people know that the lake was unsafe, but overnight, the broken ice actually froze back together and the cracks were hidden by a light dusting of snow. Now this brings us to the day of our disaster, January 15, 1867. Despite it being a Tuesday, there were over 500 people happily skating on the lake that day. Under the weight of all those people, the ice at the edge of the lake started to weaken. Then big chunks of ice started to fragment and break away, causing 200 people to plunge into the freezing water. And remember, that's 200 people wearing Victorian clothes, many of whom probably couldn't swim. And some people were trapped under the ice after they fell, so it wouldn't have helped them anyway, even if they could swim. People watching on shore tried to rescue the people drowning by extending them tree branches that they actually ripped off of the tree trunks. And there were 19 icemen on duty who also launched actual boats to get out further than the branches could reach. One man, a Mr. Dutton, said, Such a sight I hope to never see again. Quite 150 persons were struggling for life. Heads and arms were to be seen all around amongst the broken masses of ice. Two yards from me, a little boy was drowning. I stood in this position for nearly half an hour, sinking down in the mud deeper every minute until the water reached my chin. I held my children as high as possible above the water until I felt my legs being cramped with the cold. I said to the eldest, Is there any help coming, Fred? Wave my walking stick, for I am sinking down in the mud. Presently the boy said, Father, a man is swimming to us, and we shall be saved. On looking around, I saw a brave young fellow plunging through the ice towards me. Some people were able to be saved quickly, and they were largely unharmed. But the ones that were rescued later, who were alive but were still in danger due to hypothermia, were taken to the Marylebone Infirmary in the St. Mary's Hospital, Paddington. Retrieved bodies were taken to nearby Marylebone Workhouse, which was a parish workhouse nearby. It actually ended up taking over a week to find all the bodies because the lake kept freezing back over, forcing them to cut channels into the ice to keep looking. To verify that they'd found everybody, they even had to call in divers at the end. In total, 40 bodies were pulled out of the icy water. It was determined that 39 had died of drowning and one had died of hypothermia. Most of them were teenage boys and young men, but there were also women and children among the dead. And this is from the Untold Lives blog of the British Library, quote, The victims came from a variety of backgrounds, not all from London. They included several schoolboys and students, clerks, a warehouseman, a fruit seller, an organ pipe maker, and an organ builder, a costermonger, I don't know what that is, a silk merchant, a coachmaker and a coachman, an upholsterer, a butler, a cabinet maker, a gentleman, a gas fitter, and a paper hanger. The youngest to die was nine-year-old Charles Jukes, the son of a Marlebone carpenter living close to the park. End quote. Now, because of the magnitude of the disaster, there was a formal inquest to investigate the deaths. They actually determined the deaths to be accidental, despite the edge of the ice purposely being broken up for the sake of the waterfowl. The inquest also recommended that the lake be reduced in depth to prevent future deaths. And so they did. They drained the whole lake and filled it back in with concrete. So instead of being like sloped and natural, it's completely flat and concrete now. It stands at a mere four feet today rather than the original 12 feet. And it's good they did that. 19 years later, in 1886, the ice would break again, 
this time sending over a hundred people into the freezing water. This time, though, the water was only three to four feet deep, and so not a single person died. And that's the story of the Regent's Park skating disaster of 1867. To me, it's wild that they actually filled in the whole thing and that a similar collapse happened again, but people were just like waist deep in the water. That's really cool. Yeah. Can you imagine being on that inquest and being the person who came up with that and being like, I fucking told you it's not even been 20 years. So I just want to know, why are people going out on frozen lakes so much? So people go out onto the ice for all sorts of reasons. It could be ice skating, like in my story, ice fishing, even cross-country skiing or hockey or just going for a walk. But no matter what you're doing out there on the ice, it could be deadly, so make sure you're paying attention and make smart choices. Let's get started with some of the background. I wanted to know, how quickly does ice actually form on a freshwater lake? There's a formula for this that sounds pretty complicated because of the weird terminology involved, but it really is just arithmetic. So, in degrees Fahrenheit, and specifically Fahrenheit, take the average of the high and low temperature predictions for the day. Then, subtract the average temperature from 32, which is the freezing point of water. The remaining number is called the freezing degree days. For example, if the high for the day is 24 degrees Fahrenheit and the low is 18 degrees Fahrenheit, you get an average temperature of 21, which is the midpoint between 24 and 18. Now subtract 21 from 32 and you remain with 11 freezing degree days. For every 15 freezing degree days that you accumulate in 24 hours, one inch of ice will be formed on the lake. So for our example day, if you end up with 11 out of 15, that equals to about three quarters of an inch of ice formed that day. That formula only works as a general rule though, right? There are a lot of other things that affect ice formation, like snowfall, sun, or other previous days of thaw, right? Yeah, to be sure of how deep the ice is, you actually have to drill a hole into it or cut out a chunk to measure it. You can use any number of tools to open up the ice for measurement, something like an axe or even a regular cordless drill. There's also a specific tool called an ice auger that can be used to drill a decent-sized hole in the ice for measurement. Yeah, speaking of measurement, the ice has to be at least four inches thick to support the weight of an average person. If you're bringing out a large piece of equipment bigger than a person, the ice is going to need to be a lot thicker, up to a whole foot deep or even more if you're planning to take a car or a truck out there. And measure with an actual tape measure. Don't leave it up to chance. I think I'd want it even thicker than a foot, to be honest, if I'm taking a vehicle out there. And remember, depending on where you live, you may or may not get some notifications from local authorities about ice safety. So follow the experts, not us. Actually, that's a great thing to bring up. There are some cases where the 4-inch rule for ice depth actually needs to be doubled. For example, if the ice is really old, double it. Also double it if the ice is white, grayish, or cloudy rather than blue or clear. That's probably because the color of the ice is actually related to the structure inside. When ice is cloudy or white or gray, that's because of the air bubbles inside. The air bubbles make the ice less solid, so you need a lot more of it beneath you. You can also check the surface of the ice to see how strong it is. If it's smooth with no cracks, that's a good sign. One crack in the ice can reduce structural integrity by 40%, and two intersecting cracks can reduce it by 75%. So stay the fuck away from cracks or any other weird surface deformities that might indicate structural issues. 
Also, you should look out for encroaching water at the edge of the ice or near some cracks. That indicates that the ice may not be as consistently thick as you'd want. You should also stay away from patches of snow since it's an insulator and will slow down the growth rate of ice. One thing you can do is use a stick or a trekking pole or something like that to hit the ice in front of you and listen to the sound. If it feels squishy like slush or you hear a hollow sound, don't walk there. According to the Old Farmer's Almanac, slush ice has half the strength of regular ice. Also be extra careful walking on frozen rivers as well. According to that same almanac, apparently frozen rivers are 15% less strong. I'm guessing that's because of the moving water underneath, but I'm not sure. You should also listen out for the ice as you walk on it. Do you hear if it's squeaking or groaning or cracking? If you do, pay attention because that means that the ice is shifting in some way, and maybe not in a visible way. It could mean something bad for you, or maybe not, since it can actually be associated with ice growth. Yeah, ice makes a lot of sound. But if you're on ice that's thin enough, or if it's white, meaning that it's structurally unsound because of ice bubbles, you may just plummet into the water with no warning sounds at all. And when I was talking about sounds being crazy, they can sound almost alien. I watched this clip from National Geographic about skating on really thin ice, and one, it's terrifying because it's thin black ice. And two, it makes this kind of like weird alien metallic sound. It's really cool. Apparently when the ice is black like that, it's fresh and it could be as little as two inches thick when people are skating on it. It's some kind of like Nordic skating thing that I would never ever try myself. We don't recommend it if you're not an expert in that kind of Nordic ice skating. They're able to do it because the ice is fully formed all the way across and it's also supported by the water underneath in very specific conditions. So don't try it at home. So let's take a quick minute to talk about what you should be doing if you're headed for a frozen lake. Apart from learning about ice and what's safe, is there anything that people can do to improve their odds of not getting injured or dying if they're going out onto the ice? Yeah, for one, make sure you're not out on the ice alone. Your chances of survival are way higher if there's someone out there to help you. You should also consider wearing a life jacket. When you fall into freezing cold water, your body's going to do things involuntarily to keep you alive. One of those things is called the cold water shock response, in which you're going to gasp for air uncontrollably for one to two minutes. And as a side note, if you haven't seen it yet, check out Chris Hemsworth in the Limitless documentary to see an example of what this looks like. The danger with this gasping response is that if you've already fallen into the water like you're beneath the waterline, you may start gasping before you've popped back up. So wearing a life jacket should at least keep you above the surface for long enough for this one to two minutes of gasp response to not kill you. So tangentially related to taking that gasp reflex, right? I did that thing where in the last 30 minutes of a shower, turn the water minutes, cold. 30 seconds. 30. You're not in the shower for like 24 hours, 30 <laughs> seconds. The last 30 seconds of a shower go from hot to like as cold as it'll get. And it was a similar reflex where I just could not really take a full breath. When I was facing forward and I switched to facing backward away from the water, so the water's going to hit my back, right? It was like a second round of that reflex. So it was absolutely crazy to go through. That's terrible. I tried that and I only lasted five seconds. So I'm going to try to work up to 30. Then after that initial like one to two minutes of cold water shock response has passed, you've got a little bit of a gap. And then at five to 15 minutes of being in the water, you hit something called cold water incapacitation. And basically that's where your body's trying to keep you alive by pulling all of the blood out of your extremities and back to your core. So you're going to lose all of your fine motor skills and your coordination. Apparently, it gets so bad that you won't even be able to tread water to keep your head up for air, 
So you really, really, really need that life jacket that you're hopefully smart enough to be wearing. So I don't know how much this experience relates to what you just mentioned, but there was a while back in spring break at high school when I went to Virginia Beach with a group of friends. And this was spring break in like fucking March. So the water was basically literally freezing, like below 32 degrees Fahrenheit freezing. So it was incredibly difficult to just go into the water, let alone stay in it. But once I was in there with the rest of my group for a while, it got tolerable where we could just chill there, literally chill there for like half an hour. So I made it past that 15 or 5 to 15 minute incapacitation stage you talked about. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you're stuck into that stage, if you just keep moving somehow, like treading water, swimming, like we were throwing a football back and forth in the water, if that could help you. Because at that point, remember, we're at the beach, it's recreational. We're not wearing clothes. So the only thing keeping us warm is movement. It can. It's complicated. I researched this for another topic earlier where it was the airplane ones, actually, where if you're in really cold water, moving actually can make you lose more Mm. heat off of your body because you kind of have like a bubble of heat around you. But if you're in the ocean, like if you were in a plane crash or something like that, then you kind of have to move a little bit. They do like the dead man's float and lift your head up. I think when you were at Virginia Beach, the air may have been 32 degrees, but I don't think that you guys would have been able to be in the water if the water temperature was 32 degrees, because I'm going to get into it later, but there's the one ten one rule where you've got like one minute to catch your breath, 10 minutes to be able to get out of the ice, and then one hour before you lose consciousness. So if you guys were actually like playing and catching football and stuff, that means you still had those like motor skills that you would have lost if the water were that cold. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't feel my hands or anything, but I was able to at least like grip something and then throw it. So it sounds to me that maybe the water wasn't literally freezing, but it was the coldest water I've ever been in in like my entire life. You guys weren't wearing wetsuits or anything? No, absolutely not. (laughs) So high school kids are so stupid. That's awesome. So getting back to what we were saying before on frozen lakes, hopefully people on the ice are wearing life jackets. And this is news to me because I was under no impression that prior to going onto the ice that you had to be wearing a life jacket or were expected to. They're somewhat cumbersome, so there's probably people out there who don't wear them regularly. Yeah, it's the exact same as your helmet. If you wear a helmet when you ride your bike, which you should because it'll prevent you from dying, you should also wear a life jacket if you're going out on the ice. So let's say you're unlucky enough to fall through the ice, like through a hole or something. What happens then? Well, the water you're in now is just above freezing. So like I was saying, you'll basically hit a progression of one to two minutes of gasping incontrollably, which you just need to try to keep your head above the water. It's going to be more difficult to pull yourself out in this time period to just breathe. Then there's a gap, either from two to five minutes or two to 15 minutes, in which you are no longer gasping, but you haven't yet begun to lose dexterity in your limbs. You should use this window of time to get yourself out of the water. It's going to be a lot more difficult if you hit that cold water incapacitation stage later. And it's even worse if you're still in the water past that point and you start going into hypothermia around the 30-minute mark. So when you mentioned that there's that initial gasping response, it really dawned on me just now. You're probably going to be gasping, inhaling water as you're underwater, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you're lucky enough, I watched some like example videos from some like park departments about a person they actually had jump into the ice and pull himself back up. When he fell in, his head was above the water because he had on a life jacket. Mm-hmm. If you're not wearing a life jacket, you're not going to have that added buoyancy. And so when you plummet, you're going to go down and you're going to (gasps) go and try to breathe in involuntarily. And there's going to be water going straight into your lungs. That's why you want the life jacket. And actually just dawned on me too, probably a lot of the time when you're ice skating, 
you're wearing those like some kind of boot like skate something yeah. like that or like if you're maybe wearing something that is specifically to go fishing like on the ice maybe some yeah. boot like thing we talked about earlier in some other episodes where those boots can fill up with water so you might actually drown because there's water pulling up in your boots which is going to take you downwards yeah although i do have some stuff to say about not taking your clothes off later so we'll come back to that yeah so anyways, because of the buoyancy factor of wearing life jackets and not getting in a position where you're going to inhale water, that just seals the deal for me. Definitely wear life jackets if you're going out on the ice. Yeah, even if you're ice skating, wear the life jacket. So like I was talking about earlier, you can remember the time progression as the one ten one rule. One minute to get your breath under control, 10 minutes of time to get yourself out of the water, and one hour before you may lose consciousness and then you can't get out. So you need to stay calm and try to float on your stomach while you get your bearings. I've seen people do this where they like flutter kick because you're not going to be able to like fully float. So kind of just kick your legs behind you to kind of get your hips up. And since you're probably in thick winter clothes, you may panic and try to take them off like Finn was just thinking about. But I've read you should not. If you're lucky, they may actually retain some air inside and that's actually going to help keep you afloat. So what you want to do first is give yourself that one first minute to get through the cold shock response and then get your bearings. Try to turn around to see where you came from and be focused on getting out of the water in that direction quickly and safely. Like I said earlier, the best way to do that is kick your legs and you're gonna actually use that to propel yourself out of the water. And don't grab onto the ice and push down on it to pull yourself out because you might crack it even more. You wanna spread your arms out to distribute your weight. If you've thought ahead to bring an ice pick or another sharp tool, you can use that to get purchase on the ice and then pull yourself out slowly. So I don't think I quite understood what you mean by not pulling onto the ice to get out. So I'm picturing like if you're in some kind of ice hole or you fell through an ice hole and you're going back up through that hole. Yeah. How do you not grab onto it to get out of the hole? Okay. So imagine your head sticking out. You're going to just put your arms on the ice uh-huh. and it's not like getting out of a pool. So you know when you get out of a pool, you kind of like push down and jump yeah. up. Your hands are on the side of the pool. You're kind of pushing down to bear against it and you're jumping out of the pool. Yeah. This is like your arms are just there to distribute your weight and you're using your legs to kick you out. So rather than the lever point being you pushing on your hands and kind of pulling yourself forward, you're propelling yourself from inside of the water, pushing yourself forward out and onto the ice. That sounds really difficult. It does. I've seen a guy do it and he, this was like instructional videos out there about this. So the people who know what they're doing, they're expecting this to happen to themselves. They've got the right gear on. And they still, even after getting themselves out of the ice, talked about how difficult it was to get themselves out. So it's a real fucking ordeal. Yeah, it's difficult to me because you're wearing clothes. It's not like you're an Olympic swimmer and you're like in a wetsuit and you're already primed to get out. You're shocked because of what just happened. Mm-hmm. You're wearing like winter fucking like snowsuits and parkas. Mm-hmm. That's why one, the life jacket's important. And a ton of these videos were really stressing the ice picks because the ice is fucking slippery, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're trying to like pull yourself out, your arms are going to keep sliding if you don't have something. So if you have ice picks with you and you can get them easily, that gives you something to kind of stick into the ice and then you kick yourself forward and you can re-stick them farther ahead and kind of work your way forward that way. It seems to me that there is a market or a potential market for winter gloves specifically to go onto the ice that have some sort of grippy traction on top of it. You know what I'm talking about? Do you you mean like Nightmare on Elm Street like style ice gloves? So not like... You push a button and you've got like ice claws? So I'm not talking about like Black Panther style claws. I'm talking about like the entire palm of your gloves have some sort of... Like traction? Traction, like cleats. 
That would be cool. Right? Yeah. Not so much that you couldn't like use your fucking hands, but enough to give you ice traction. Yeah, it would have to be enough to actually dig into the ice, but I'm sure it's possible. Or if not on your palms, maybe on like the edges or something, because like if you're grabbing something, you want to scratch up your shit. So yeah, I don't know. I feel like there's a market for that. I'd buy it. Anyways, it sounds like to me that I need to go look up those videos, those instructional videos of how to get out because this seems like you can't just figure it out. Even with the information that we're telling you now, you can't just use that to get out. I think you have to watch a demonstration. Yeah, you really do. And actually, some of those demonstrations actually show the guy, same guy getting out with ice picks and without ice yeah. picks. So it's it's really worth watching the technique on both of those. Yep. And one other point here, if you're able to Try not to exit the water from the same spot where you fell in if the ice broke there. That ice is already structurally compromised at that spot. So don't try to climb out of that way unless you have no other way out. You just have to make sure that you're headed back in the direction that you came from. I feel like that's one of those easier said than done things. I would probably start trying to claw my way back out while screaming inarticulately. I don't do well when my brain shuts down, at least not like verbally. At night one time, a dog ran up on me and our dogs, and I just said the word dog, dog, dog at like a scream level because that's all my brain could do. So I don't think that people would hear me saying like help in the woods. They would just hear like a scream in the wilderness and they, they would probably just leave me to die. And speaking of easier said than done, if you do have to scream, try to use actual words and sentences to scream for help. Hopefully, you're already out there on the ice with other people, but even if you're not, there could be someone with an earshot who could help you. That's true, and I am really loud. Now, if you're not able to pull yourself entirely out and onto the ice, try to at least get the upper part of your body out of the water for a couple of reasons. One, for warmth, because you'll have your core out of the water. And two, so your clothes can drain the water out. That's going to reduce weight on you. It's going to make climbing out a lot easier. Then once you're out of the water, log roll back the direction that you came because that's going to distribute your weight out and reduce the chance of you falling in again. I always thought that you were supposed to like army crawl, but a lot of the experts actually said log roll. So just keep that in mind. Army crawl if you need to, but your first thing you go to should be log rolling. Now you need to be careful to stay on this exact same path that you entered from since you've already fallen in once and you know other parts of the ice may also be unstable. Just stick to what you know is safe. Once the ice is a little bit thicker, you can transition to crawling on your hands and knees until it's safe enough to walk. Remember that's log roll, then crawl on your hands and knees, and finally then walk. Now, if you've seen somebody else fall into the ice, yell for help and then call 911 or whatever your local equivalent is if you have reception. First responders will be way more effective than you at getting somebody out of the water. But if there's no time, See if you can reach them with a long branch or a rope or some other long object to help pull them out from a distance. If that's not possible, you can crawl on your belly over to them and then offer your hand. But if the ice is treacherous, there's a risk that you'll fall in yourself, so exercise extreme caution. Once you or whoever got in the water is out, get to shelter as quickly as you can. Strip off your wet clothes and get dried off. Focus on getting your core warm rather than your extremities. If you warm up your extremities first, and I didn't know this before, the cold blood can actually be driven back to your heart too quickly and cause ventricular fibrillation, and that can cause shock or even kill you. And don't get warmed up too quickly either, because you can run the risk of heart arrhythmias. And if in doubt at all, seek medical attention. Hypothermia is no joke, and you may be worse off than you realize. 
Also, all of these rescue situations go for dogs falling into the water as well. If you have a dog with you, try not to let it run out on the ice away from you unless you're 100% positive that the ice is safe. I've seen a few videos of people rescuing dogs from the ice, and it's always so scary. I saw one where a guy had to wade through chest-deep water to save a dog, and luckily everybody survived in that situation, but it was harrowing. Just don't take your dog out there unless you have to, and if you do, keep them close to you and put them in a life jacket too. So as promised, we did some quote-unquote research into portrayals of frozen lakes and other bodies of water in media, such as movies, and there's a couple noteworthy ones that are particularly relevant to the subject. So the first one that we have listed is the Chris Nolan Batman. I think the first one and the third one have these scenes, but do you have anything you want to talk about before I give my thoughts? Can you actually give us a recap of what happens in those scenes? Because I, until I was researching this episode, forgot that there was even any ice at all in the Christopher Nolan Batmans. Yeah, so in part of the training montage in the first one, which has Liam Neeson as his mentor, one of the fight scenes between Christian Bale and Liam Neeson is they're on this frozen pond or lake or something. Near the end of it, Christian Bale, quote unquote, is the winner, but Liam Neeson says, you gave up your tactical advantage for a situational or environmental weakness. Okay. And then the ice underneath Christian Bale gives out and he falls in. Okay, so like he was set up. Does he have to get himself out of the ice? They literally skip that part. It just skips to them after that, just huddling over a fire. But I thought that scene was a little bit weird because to me, falling through ice like that in such a sudden way seems unlikely. Especially if you've been fighting the whole fucking time, right? Like you fighting, it's got to be like a lot of hard impacts on that ice and then you've stopped moving and then you fall through. I don't know. I'm not sure that I buy that. Yeah, especially because I feel like you would be able to hear or have some kind of indication Like just sudden falling through doesn't really make sense. Uh, Well, if it was like the white slushy ice, you wouldn't have a sound then. But if it was hard enough for them to be fighting on, then yeah, you would expect there to be sounds. Yeah, and something happens in the third one too, The Dark Knight Rises, where there's like some sort of kangaroo court led by Killian Murphy. And oh, I forgot. he sentences some Gothamites out onto the ice by like the Brooklyn Bridge or something. And people are just walking through, they're basically getting executed. So they walk through onto the ice, it's frozen. And some fall through and they just ostensibly drown and die. How did I forget about that scene? Oh my god, okay. Yeah, and to me, it's still the same kind of lack of realism there too. Like, I don't see how they could suddenly fall through. Because there was no... Well, there was some ice cracking sounds, if I remember correctly. But I feel like the way that they fell through in a specific human-shaped hole just for them, that obviously it's not realistic. Yeah, did you notice, so we talked in the opening about like the Hobbit and the Battle of the Five Armies. By the way, we're picking movies that are relevant to our interests. So there's a ton of movies out there where there is ice and people falling, but we picked like Batman and other action movies because we like those. And more people will be familiar with it as well. That's true. I also just didn't want to watch It's a Wonderful Life, even though I know it's Christmas time. But the Hobbit and the Battle of the Five Armies is what we talked about in the beginning, where we just watched that scene where Thorin's out on the ice and the big orc is coming out him. I didn't hear any sounds. You didn't hear any ice cracking sounds, did you? It just kind of started cracking around them. Well, I think the ice cracking was implied by the fucking smashing with his chain rock thing. There would still be sound, though. Anyway, so they're like going, there's like a circle of ice around them, and it's very, very quiet. And the big orc actually falls in, and this is the part that bothers me so much. So Thorin, weirdly, is like walking over top of him as this orc is like floating in the water, like pretending to die. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen this movie. But 
Then his eyes open up and he leaps through the ice. First, he stabs Thorin's foot and he leaps through the ice and he just breaks through and he's on top again. That makes no sense to me. You can't just bust through solid ice on top of you, even if you're a giant ass orc. Yeah, it seems to me that if it was so stable for you to like literally have a one-on-one duel on, yeah. that you couldn't just jump through it. It doesn't make quite any sense. That's kind of why we talk about movies with these topics, because if that's kind of what you're basing this off of, I mean, obviously, you know, you're not as strong as an orc, but if you're basing your understanding of these things on what you've seen in movies, you're like way off from what you're actually going to be able to do. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to lead into a false sense of security in which, oh, this happened in this movie, so therefore. I should be able to avoid dying in this way, but that's really not the case. That might just be us. I base everything in my life on like horror movies and action movies and like what I should do in different circumstances. So I think it's good to learn about this. And the one I saved the best for last, and that was the Jurassic World Dominion, whatever the last one was called. Chris Pratt and the one of the woman leads are walking across like an ice field. <laughs> this was so good. They're walking across it and... We saw like a red letter media breakdown of this too, where like they're walking across it and instead of like army crawling or like log rolling, like the experts are recommending, they just walk slower. Like their weight distribution walking slower is somehow going to help them. I just, oh my gosh, I don't understand. I think if I saw that, I would probably walk slower too. I don't know. Yeah, that's a really good point because people are going to watch it with their kids or the like elders and say, oh. Look at that. They're hunching down, almost crouching, walking slow, and people are going to internalize that whether they want to or not. Yeah, you're not being hunted by the ice. Walking slower and crouching is not going to help you at all. Ideally, if you can, you want to go backwards, back the way you came, because if it started cracking as you're walking forwards, you want to exit back the direction that you came from before it started cracking. So I have a couple last things I want to bring up before we wrap up this episode. Depending on where you are, some areas are going to put up thin ice signs. If you see a thin ice sign, you should really, really, really not go out onto that ice because it's been marked as thin by the experts. So even if you think it seems safe, it may not be safe all the way through and you don't know where it's bad. Also, if you're somewhere new, make sure you're checking with locals before you go out onto the ice. They're going to know a lot more about the area and how to stay safe in this particular place. Finally, one last thing that I didn't bring up earlier is I always talk about like filing a flight plan, which is like, oh, I'm going to go camping in this area. So let me let the rangers and my family know where I'm going when I'm expected back. Apparently with like going out onto the ice, people are very, very precise about when they file their flight plans. Let's say I'm going to be back at exactly five o'clock. That means that at 5.01, you need to start calling 911 because it's, it's on, the burden is on me to reach you and let you know that I'm okay. And if I haven't done it, you don't wait around. You just call 911 immediately. And that's on me, not you, because I may be stuck out on the ice and like waiting five minutes could be like the end of me. All right, Finn, do you have anything else? No, I'm good. Okay, actually, sorry. I do have one very, very, very last thing. And that is if you are not comfortable going out on the ice, don't go out on the ice. A couple of boys died in New Jersey, a couple of teenage boys who went out onto the ice. And I think it was the governor there who said, just don't go out on the ice at all. So all of this to say, this should not empower you to go do something that you would not otherwise do. But if you were going to do it, exercise caution and follow the rules. All right, that's actually all I have. Don't forget that we have a website, inthelabyrinthofdeath.com. You can also reach us on Instagram at inthelabyrinthofdeath. Follow us and leave us a review if you get a chance. We'd really appreciate it. Tune in next week for a new episode of In the Labyrinth of Death. In the meantime, 
send us your near misses with frozen lakes or frozen bodies of water to in the labyrinth of death at gmail.com. We'll see y'all next week. This podcast is researched and presented by enthusiasts, not experts, and is for entertainment purposes only. None of the content that you have heard is meant to be taken as legal, medical, financial, survival, or any other kind of advice. Please consult with professionals. Thank you.